Well, we come this morning to the end of Titus. It's hard to believe, but uh, we've made our way through, I think it's eight messages total now. And here we come to the end of a book. We have been looking from week one right through to this moment at what a healthy church includes. And so that graphic that you have come to know well is on the screen in front of you. Um, many of us wish we had arms that look like that, don't we? Uh, some of us uh, could work a little harder at it. I'm sure that might yield some results. But nonetheless, that's a, a visual image of what a healthy church, a strong church might uh, come to be. But as we come to the end of, of Titus this morning, I, I want you to just kind of reach back over the last several weeks and try to grab as much of that that the Spirit of God would bring to mind, what, what a healthy church includes. It includes healthy people, healthy men, healthy women, older and younger. Remember how chapter 2 laid all of that out. It includes healthy leaders. Paul spent time in chapter 1 saying, Titus, you as an elder need to be qualified in these particular ways. And, and healthy church leadership models and, and demonstrates, lives a, a life of integrity and character along certain lines. Relationally, then, we, we pursue certain objectives. And we're always mindful of the fact, as Andrew read at the outset of the service, that portion from, uh, from Titus 2 that tells us ultimately it's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness and to be people who are devoted to righteous living. So all kinds of particular messages, if you will, that Titus has put in front of us. And, and we want to kind of boil it down to a few helpful things here at the conclusion. You know, good health is the result of choices that we make. And sometimes those choices are not uh, particularly easy some of you say, that's a no-brainer. Uh, and I want to ask you which, si which side you go to to say it's no-brainer, because some of you are drawn to the right side of that picture, saying that's not even a choice. Look at those sprinkles. Look at the chocolate underneath those sprinkles. And others of you are like, no, left side. Right side will kill you. You know, you, you eat 12 of those things, and you are done. So there would be differences of opinion as to what that choice really amounts to, but I think we would all agree there really is one choice in that picture that is the healthier choice, right? Good health is the result not only of choices we make regarding our diet, but it includes choices that we make regarding exercise and even rest. Those things and, and many more that we could probably add to a list of, of what contributes to our overall health would be really important. And you know, with respect to our spiritual health, it's important that we make the right kinds of choices. And Paul has told us in Titus 3, verses 1 through 8, that there are certain things we must devote ourselves to. If you are, are looking at the scriptures right now, and I would encourage you to, to look at Titus 3 with me this morning. We looked at verses 1 through 8 last week, and there were certain things in that portion that Paul said, they are profitable, profitable. And, and let's review that real quickly. There were some things that appeared like submission and obedience, people who are prepared for good works, people who are gentle and courteous in every way to every person, even when we take a stand for truth or we try to proclaim truth or promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the final verses before us this morning, he's giving us things to avoid because they are ultimately unprofitable or worthless 
and ultimately harmful, not just to us personally, but to the cause of Jesus Christ. And all of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to be on mission with Jesus and for Jesus. And so the choices that we make are vital to our personal growth in Christ-likeness, and they are vital to the spread of the gospel in our world today. Now, the, the screen just before this, the, the first major point that I want you to consider this morning from verse 9 is that healthy churches avoid divisive controversies. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 9 of Titus 3, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and work through it as we do week by week. Paul writes to Titus and the saint at Crete, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Here's the big thought for us in in verse 9. Healthy churches avoid dissension. Now, again, this is going to stand in contrast to what we saw in verses 1 through 8. And let's talk about some of the things that, that, as we read through there, emerged from Paul's writing. These are the things that are unprofitable or worthless. And he said, avoid these things. Turn your back on them. Turn away from them. Just don't get caught up in them. First of all, notice what he says about foolish controversies. This would refer to an exchange of words that really are devoid of wisdom. And and this stands in contrast to how we are people of truth. It does seem to reflect some of the themes that he wrote of to Timothy, another pastor. And so those two letters to Timothy and Titus very often include similar themes. He wrote to Timothy, similarly, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, we'll get to those in just a moment, which promotes speculations. And that little word speculation is very similar to the same term that he's put before us, foolish controversies. There's no way to determine what actually is or is not, what is right or best in these things. These would be matters of opinion, even matters that that no one could really discern. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in these things. Secondly, I'm going to come back and wrap some of these things together. He refers to genealogies. Now, someone might say, well, what's wrong with researching your genealogy? Well, nothing. Uh, In one sense, there's a a sense that Paul is speaking of here. This actually prompted me this week to pull out a big fat notebook that my dad's one and only brother, my Uncle Gary, has spent years uh, putting together. It's a notebook filled with our family tree. And it's quite remarkable to, to, to read through all of that. If you go back far enough, you'll find that, uh, that we have relatives who are actually uh, in relationship to Abraham Lincoln. It's by marriage. It's through the Hanks family. But nonetheless, I can say he's my distant cousin. 
You keep pushing back further and further through history. And, and the, the oldest family member that my uncle has been able to find is, is a man uh, who was born in 1630 and lived in Virginia. And you say, that's kind of neat. 400 years of family pedigree. Some of them are, are scoundrels, to be honest. You know enough about their life to go, ooh, rough life there. Uh, others, truly saints of God. Not because they were such high, uh, highly moral people, but because they had a clear testimony for Jesus Christ. And that, that's a particular blessing to go back several generations and see how the gospel emerged in the souls of, uh, of some of my family members. There's nothing wrong with spending time putting together your, your family tree. But the kind of discussion that Paul is pointing to has to do with tracing a spiritual pedigree so that you can stand on top of the heap, as it were, and say, well, look at my rich spiritual heritage. Look at how spiritual I am, because I'm descended from these people. And for the Jews, that was particularly important, of what tribe you came from and, and who your ancestors were. And some believe that it positioned them for spiritual authority or spiritual privilege. It was a genealogy that was abused. It ties back to chapter 1. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1 very briefly as Paul issues a warning to Titus. Don't let them devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. One author notes that Jews were turning the entire historical substance of their past into mere myth. And the genealogies were not treated primarily as historical documents, but instead were subjected to a highly symbolic interpretative scheme. So there's a second problem emerging. It's not just that some were saying, well, these are the ones I'm descended from, so you know, I have a place of significance or should, but rather they were looking at some of these uh, historical records and imposing these bizarre uh, interpretative schemes. Names, dates, and places supposedly contained hidden meanings, which became the basis for esoteric doctrine. Oh, that's very appealing to every generation, isn't it? That's why some of you spend hours on YouTube looking at conspiracy theories. Well, they're not telling us the whole truth. Well, on one hand, of course not. On the other hand, stop digging for stuff that doesn't really exist. God has given you plenty of truth that you need to immerse your heart and mind in and then go live. You don't need to go digging deeper and deeper and deeper and going, well, what's really behind this and behind that and the other? And they're not telling us, and the world doesn't know, and somebody needs to know this stuff. Somebody does, and his name is God. So just entrust it to him. Leave it alone. Another author says, many first century Jews enjoy devotional works of inventive stories about people and the genealogies of the Old Testament. The book of Jubilees, that's an apocryphal book. And, and, and I read a little bit of this week, and I thought, Sounds a lot like the Bible in some ways, but it, it's not Scripture. It's actually a, an apocryphal or non-canonical writing. It was popular uh, with many people in Paul's day. It retells the events from creation to the giving of the law, incorporating fanciful legends about the patriarchs and expanding upon the ancestry list in Genesis. Well, you know, it's intriguing. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to know the rest of the story when it comes to Noah. Who wouldn't want to have some of the details about what uh, Abraham and 
Lot or Job and his friends might have experienced, but it's fabricated. I appreciate so much the helpful comments of another author who writes, the only genealogy that ultimately matters to Christians is Christ's. His genealogy serves as a proof of both the Bible's inspiration and the deity of Christ. The Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham, according to Genesis, the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis 49, from the family of Jesse and the house of David. Indeed, this is precisely what happened as the New Testament writers, including the Apostle Paul, reveal to us. And the genealogies of of the Old Testament move us with hope and expectation toward the one promised Messiah, because every other king, every other prophet, every other priest ultimately failed the people of God. There's no hidden meanings in those genealogies. There's no esoteric doctrine tucked in between the lines of Scripture. This would be an example of what Paul is addressing, saying, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. The the third thing that he notes here would be dissensions. These are what grow out of those foolish controversies. This has to do with bitter conflict Heated and violent sometimes even. This is a fight. Sadly, we see it on social media, even between Christians. And I think, you know, our adversary is really smart. He doesn't have to eliminate us totally. He just needs to get us fighting each other, and then we're not fighting him. We're not fighting for the gospel. And Paul says you need to avoid these dissensions. Number four, in quarrels about the law. It's one thing when you have disagreements, but but quarreling actually about God's word. Now, in particular, it probably had to do with the the Old Testament regulations and what should and should not be practiced in present days. Probably something like Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23, where where Paul writes to another group of saints uh, of these regulations that some were trying to bring into the church, and he summarized them by saying, do not handle do not taste, do not touch. And then he says, referring to things that all perish as they are used, so probably food laws, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It would be as absurd as if I stood up here today and said, you know, it is not proper for us, according to God's Old Testament food laws, for you to eat macaroni and cheese. If you really love Jesus and if you're really serious about holiness, you would stop eating that food. Actually, Jesus addressed this and handled this when he said, all foods are clean. And then you remember that amazing story in Acts, which we will have opportunity to talk about some of this in the month of November. Um, Just a little side note here. We're going to take about four weeks and, and do a topical series on the Christian conscience which I think will be really helpful because there's a lot of debate right now about everything from politics uh, to pandemics and a whole lot of other stuff that we have differences of opinion and we need to know how to navigate this thing with wisdom and maturity and the love of Christ in our hearts. But imagine that I stood before you today and said, I have, I have secret insight from the Lord and here are foods you should not eat and here are even things that you should not handle. It might sound spiritual, but according to Paul in Colossians 2, this is the kind of abuse of God's law that actually undermines true spirituality. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, notice those two words again. 
and look at the text, they are unprofitable and worthless. It may feel like it's a really substantial spiritual discussion. It may feel like a controversy that can and should be resolved uh, by, by God's people. But at the end of the day, these kinds of things are unprofitable. That is, they serve no benefit, they serve no purpose, and they bring no benefit either to you as an individual or to our church. In an article that I would encourage you to consider reading, it's found on the Gospel Coalition's website, an article by Russell Moore, Why Unhealthy People Crave Controversy. He shares a, a, a bit of a conversation he had with an older pastor, a pastor that he says has now gone on to be with the Lord, but a pastor who was seasoned and experienced, a veteran of many, many years of working with people. And Moore writes, I asked him why the people why people keep telling him what others were saying in the church. Because, you know, very often people will say, Pastor, I just need to let you know what, what some people are saying. Pastor, I, I'm not trying to gossip, but... And then they proceed to gossip. And so Russell Moore was asking this veteran pastor about that kind of thing. And so the pastor says a lot of time it's just human nature. Gossip is fun, and gossip about gossip is even more fun because it can let you gossip while pretending not to. I thought, yeah, that's a wise pastor. Moore goes on to write, he paused for a minute and said, but mostly, listen to this, it's entertainment. To a lot of folks, these dramas, whether in their workplace or in their neighborhood or in their church, it's just kind of a soap opera to them. And then he shrugged and smiled and went right back to what he was doing, headed to the hospital to visit the sick. I read that and I thought, that's exactly what Paul is driving at. And I'm not trying to pick on what the pastor said, only according to Paul, it's not merely entertainment. It's not merely just an exercise in gossiping about gossip. It's actually unprofitable and worthless. And we're going to see in just a moment, it actually is sin. But what a sad thing that many of us get caught up in this kind of foolishness that leads to this kind of of dissension and, and, and such, and not just to the worthless or unprofitability of our ministry, but we forfeit the opportunity to participate with Jesus and his church. This kind of foolishness is more than a distraction. It really is a strategy of the adversary that gets us off the real battlefield. I love the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, and this is a little bit of where we will go in November when we explore the Christian conscience and how the priorities of Christ and his gospel really begin to shape how we think and how we live our lives. And Paul is explaining to the Corinthian believers how he navigates some of these difficult decisions, especially as he moves between the world of committed Jews and Gentiles, of how he seeks to be pastor and and missionary and church planter in all kinds of contexts and settings. And his words in 1 Corinthians 9 Uh, Verse 19 and 23 are helpful for us. First of all, he says, though I'm free from all. And he's making the point, I don't even think of myself as a Jew primarily. I'm a citizen of the Most High God and His heaven. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And then listen to this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. The problem is many of us hold to our opinions, do our work, pursue our goals and objectives, not for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of self. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them, and who would be to them? Both Jew and Gentile, the people of the, of the world, that I may share with them in its blessing. I wonder if verse 9 describes you. Have you been distracted by foolish controversies and sidelined from the gospel mission? Is advancing a political agenda more important to you at this moment than advancing the cause of Christ? Perhaps you need to repent. And as Paul said, avoid all of this. Turn your back on it today in order that you might devote yourself to what matters eternally. Well, that brings us to a second thought. Healthy churches deal with divisive people. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is, this is God's action plan and his instruction. A person who stirs up division. So, so he's talking about a person who's characterized by being schismatic. He's not talking about those of us who just foolishly from time to time say something really dumb and it makes people mad and there's a little bit of a kerfuffle and then we make it right and go on. No, he's talking about people who are always, always stirred up about something and stirring others about something. You read the letters of the New Testament and I don't think there's one church that the apostles write to that doesn't have some kind of controversy or false teaching issue in them. And what does Paul say? First of all, you warn him. And if he doesn't hear the first warning, you warn him again. That has the idea of reproving that would lead to corrected behavior. So a person who stirs it up needs to be confronted. But if they are not willing to listen to these two warnings, which actually you think about it, that, that's not a lot. And I think it's because a, a church is susceptible to this kind of division, and you just can't give it time to work itself out. And so that's where Paul says, have nothing to do with him. The New American Standard actually chooses a, an even stronger term to, to try to translate the, the Greek terminology here, and it uses this phrase, reject a factious person. Why? Well, look at verse 11. This is God's assessment. Three words. First of all, warped. That has, to, that has to do with a distortion, and the standard would be God's truth, the, the straight line of God's truth, and this person's life and demeanor is, is actually a distortion of that truth. He's warped. Then, second of all, sinful. That's that term we're familiar with that, that we, many of us learned from the time we were really little. Sin is a missing the mark. And again, what mark are we missing? The, the mark of God's perfect righteousness, the mark of God's truth. So it's not just that this, this person is a little off and, you know, we ought to just be patient and give it time, but there's actual sin involved here. And then thirdly, look, look at what the Word of God says, self-condemned. Someone whose own words, actions, or behavior have demonstrated their own worthiness of condemnation. This is not even Paul stepping forward saying, I'm condemning this guy. This is not Paul saying to Titus, you need to condemn this guy. He's saying he's self-condemned. Hold his life, hold his words up to the standard of God's truth, the standard of God's righteousness. He misses the mark. He is clearly deviating from it. It's self-condemnation. I'm going to call this guy John for the sake of the story. That's not his real name. But John was exactly this kind of person, always stirred up about something, from politics to religion, 
uh, he, he was quite a researcher. He was either in the library or online researching conspiracies and bringing them to the attention of anybody who would listen. And in the time that he was in our church, he was always making an effort to bring it to the, the attention of our church leadership. It came to the place, though, where he moved out of kind of that, that marginal conspiracy theory that we're all a little bit intrigued by. I'll just call it, you know, kind of like the Bigfoot world. Uh, but then it, it morphed into something that actually was really dangerous. It came to the place where he began to slander church leaders, some of them local, some of them of a national stature and reputation. And a couple of us actually began to warn him on these occasions where he would bring these accusations into private conversation, and it would generally begin something like this. Hey, Danny, have you heard? And then he'd tell me what his research discovered. And I found that often he had twisted or distorted or lifted out of context comments that were made or decisions that had been rendered. And, and after, and honestly, I probably was too patient with him and didn't follow Titus's word exactly because there were multiple conversations over a period of time, and he would drift in and out of church, and you wouldn't see him for several months, and then he'd show up. But one particular Sunday morning where there had been a, a couple of conversations, and, and I know that I and at least one other individual had warned him very specifically. He walks through the doors uh, as, as we're preparing for our worship service, and without so much as a good morning, how are you, tell me about your week, he went straight for a slanderous accusation against one of uh, my friends, a fellow pastor there in town, and I cut him off, and I said, John, you need to leave right now. And I had already done a little background work with another one of our elders who was a police officer, and we had discussed it, and I said, you know, this guy's a problem. Do we have a right to, like, kick him off the property and tell him never to come back? And he's like, absolutely, we, we can do that. I hope we don't have to take legal action, but we worked it all out. And I just said to him, you are no longer welcome here because you continue to slander brothers and sisters in Christ. You continue to bring false accusations against God's people, and it is sinful. I'm asking you to leave the property immediately, and if you come back, we will escort you off. And his jaw just dropped. Like, are you serious? I said, I'm very serious. And I began to walk with him to the door. And, and it, he was just like flabbergasted, befuddled, didn't know what to do with himself. And I, I, that may be the last time I've seen him. I grieve for him on the one hand, but I'm happy to follow God's command as Titus records for us because that kind of activity and work is sinful and destructive. I pray we never have to do that here. But in all likelihood, there will come a day where we will. But you know, if we're all alert to this kind of thing and those little conversations that emerge that at first you're like, that was odd, be aware of it. Keep Titus 3 in mind because this type of thing is destructive to God's church. Do you know anybody who could be described as a divisive person? And here's another question. Are you actually allowing them to occupy bandwidth in your soul or even your schedule to the detriment of your walk with Christ or the health of the church. Don't do it. Some of you are merciful and compassionate, and you look at that and say, that seems so harsh. Could we not give them a third time? I, I tend toward that side uh, of this conversation. But if this is the word of the Lord, then it's marked by perfect wisdom and perfect love. Now, that's one of those moments where we're all like, Wow, 
That's heavy. Yes, it is. Uh, But let's press on here. And let's notice this last thought. Healthy churches unite in gospel mission. I'm going to give you just kind of four headings uh, under this main heading here. And, and you might look at these, uh, even as I was reading them, and you're like, it's interesting, four names appear. I'd like to know more about Artemis or Tychicus. And how about Zenos the lawyer, Apollos? I think I remember reading something about him in Corinthians, but who are these people and what are they doing? Are, are they all guys? Are any of these ladies' names? Um, and we know a few things about them, but I don't want you to miss the big, the big part of what is happening here. There's something very personal, something very tender even, as Paul wraps up this letter when he says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, apparently, these two men are going are to head to Crete and replace Titus, maybe permanently, maybe for a short term, but it's a reminder to us that sometimes your personal presence is necessary in the bigger gospel mission. The support of personal presence in mission is part of how healthy churches unite in gospel mission. We really don't know anything specific about Artemis. Tychicus, on the other hand, is the well-known traveling companion of Paul. He was an Asian, according to Acts 20, verse 4, who carried Paul's letters to Ephesus and Colossae. So a trusted friend, must have been a close companion. But other than that, we don't know a ton. But here's Paul after concluding this really helpful and powerful letter full of doctrine, full of uh, Christ and what he is and what he has done for his people, writes in very personal terms, I need you. The support of, of your personal presence is also needed in the church. Here's a second thought. Look at the next verse. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Here's how I would summarize this. The supply of personal resources is also necessary for mission. Speed Zenos and Apollos on their way. That, that is, help them on their journey. Supply to them whatever is necessary. Maybe food, it may be clothing, it, it, it may be something of a, of a personal connection as they move from town to town. Paul doesn't go into details here. We have an idea of how the first century church seemed to operate in those days. It could have even been a a brief description of the hospitality that would be required of these fellow believers. But Paul says, see that they lack nothing. I love the words of the Apostle John. They're similar to Paul's appeal here. But in 3 John Verse 6, there are no chapters in 3 John. It's just one little letter, and so we, we tack some verse numbers on there to help us organize it. But in verse 6, you see John referring to a group of believers who were serving the church, and he says of them, they testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Then listen to this. Therefore, we ought to support people like this that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You have this sense of camaraderie, of a team spirit. John writing to other saints saying, can you help them? They've gone out for the sake of the name. They're worthy of support because they're in this effort together. The supply of personal resources is necessary for mission. The number three, the united effort required in our mission. Paul comes back to this theme that he's developed before. Look at the next verse. Let our people learn to devote themselves, that is to give intense effort to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
We sometimes think that just spreading the gospel is the really big work, big work but underneath it, part of what gives the, the gospel some of its uh, credibility and integrity in the community, if you will, is that we be known as a people who are engaged in good works. I'm so full of gratitude today because there have actually been, uh, there are more examples than this, but I'm going to give you four examples from this past week alone, I think it would be. One of our couples loaned a car to a, a family who's new to our church after they had significant car trouble without transportation. Another one of our men helped to organize that and coordinate that, and I heard a sweet testimony from this family who received that help just Friday night saying, it amazes us because honestly, we're, we're strangers to gospel hope in one sense. But here you are as a church family stepping up saying, how can we help? There's an urgent need. We can do that. Several of you showed up yesterday to help with a food pantry at Missy O'Day. Thanks to you who were there with joy. Uh, it, was, it was almost comical at some points, like a car would pull in and four people with boxes would go out and it'd be like, oh, well, you go first. And one kid was there even going, dibs, dibs, eager to serve, eager, eager to, to participate in good works. I'm grateful for the multiple families and individuals who are opening their homes and hospitality for dinners and cookouts and, and game nights, just building that relationship, seeking to be an encouragement and a blessing, especially in a hard season where our, our routines are so topsy-turvy. I'm so grateful for deacons who even this week had an opportunity to jump on an urgent need that we were made aware of because another member of our congregation made a, a, a call, as it were, saying, did you all know? And I said, uh, no, not those details. And so that started a little communication uh, through our, our deacons. And uh, praise God for all this. Those are, those are examples of good works that are underway right now. Now, let's not pat ourselves on the back and say, ah, check that box, we got that covered, move on to other stuff. No, just keep, just keep fanning that flame because those are the kinds of things that are in view. And it takes the united effort, all of us, or as Matt says, 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. That's really at the heart of what Paul is saying. Now, finally, and this is the best part to me, the grace of God that encompasses our mission is what is necessary for a healthy church. Look at those last couple of words. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. It's easy to run by these salutations and final greetings and say to ourselves, yeah, yeah, we get it. Paul begins all of his letters with something like grace and peace and mercy or some combination thereof to you. And then he wraps it up by saying grace, as he does here, be with you all. Grace is the good stuff. Apart from the grace of God, there is no doctrinal content to put in the middle of a letter between the salutation and the closing. God's grace, as one author writes, is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ. And remember, there's a past aspect of salvation where it is right for us as followers of Jesus to say, God has saved me. There's a present aspect of this work of salvation, so it's right for us to say, God is saving me. And there's a future aspect of this work of Christ where it's right for us to say, and he will save me. And all of that is loaded into this one little phrase, grace be with you all. 
God's grace, as this author writes, is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ, stressing that salvation comes as a free gift to undeserving sinners. It is an enormously significant word in Paul's theology. Listen to this. Of its 155 occurrences in the New Testament, 100 are in Paul's letters. You think grace is important to him? I'm sure of it. He uses the word uh, to show us a much deeper concept than just God's favor be upon you. Uh, it's actually closer to that Old Testament concept of God's steadfast or loyal love. Grace is the saving act of God whereby he justifies us fully, forgives us freely, and then positions us as heirs with Jesus for eternity. Grace is that saving act of God whereby he trains us, as, as Titus 2 verse 12 says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace is what drives chapter 3 verse 7, that truth that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I was thinking through this letter and even beyond it yesterday as, as I was just meditating on what it means when we would say to one another or Paul would write to the saints like us, grace be with you all. Grace is the saving act of God that creates a living hope in our hearts, a confident expectation that we call our blessed hope, Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of, the, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace is the saving act of God that strengthens us moment by moment for this life. And life is really hard and challenging at this moment, isn't it? It's the same grace that Paul spoke of to Timothy when he wrote that letter saying, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. These are not idle words. These are not fanciful, uh, uh, these are not fanciful notions just to, to kind of pat each other on the back, but these are substantial truths that need to be woven into our prayers and woven into our, our hearts. Grace is the saving act of God that encourages us when we are doubtful and depressed, that comforts us when we are sad and sorrowful, that shelters us when we feel vulnerable and exposed, when our fear runs rampant through our minds in the middle of the night. Grace is, is what provides for us when we are taxed beyond our resources and pressed beyond our limits. There is no greater word of blessing or hope that we could speak over another person or to a congregation than grace be with you all. Grace is the saving act of God that overcomes our sins, not just with a past view of the cross, but even actively as God continues to pour out that grace upon us so that day by day and even imperceptibly from your perspective and mine, inch by inch as it were, we actually do progress in holiness, grow in righteousness so that we may say with joy and confidence as John Newton said so long ago, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace is the saving act of God that moves us to pray in this dark hour for our nation's history, of our nation's history. Grace is what motivates us to proclaim the gospel in a place like this on a Sunday morning and in the workplace and the neighborhood and out on the street Monday through Saturday. 
We may not see the results we long to see at this point, but our God is full of grace, and he's told us my grace is greater than your sin individually. It's greater than the grace of the world as we multiply it over a million times. Grace is the saving act of God that moves us to start churches when it doesn't make human sense, that moves us to support missions that we may not fully understand or to ordain pastors and launch singles and couples and families in mission in the years to come. It's grace from start to finish. It's grace. And just like Paul's salutation that stands at the front of this letter, grace and mercy be to you. And the concluding word, grace be with you all. All of life is of grace, by grace, and for grace. That old familiar hymn, Amazing grace has a beautiful line in it. Tis grace has, hath brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. It's not a might. It's not a maybe. It's a will. So how beautiful that Paul takes us through all of this important truth and doctrine concerning a healthy church, but then wraps it up with this beautiful and powerful word of hope. And it's, his, it's God's word for us today. Because Christ is who he is and has done what he has done, it's true over us like it was over Crete. Grace be with you all. Would you bow your heads with me, please? What's your next step of faith and obedience? As you ask the question, now what? What do, what do we do with Titus? What do we do with even that last little phrase? Well, what, what's your next step of faith and obedience? For some of you, it is believe. Some of you still have not actually activated your faith by repenting of your sins, turning your back on all of that, and saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I believe that by your death on the cross, you've paid the debt of my sins. I believe. If that's the next step of faith for you, a first step, but the next step, take it right now. Just quietly from your heart to God's. Others of you, if you were honest right now, would say my next step would be a return to God. I've repented of my sin and put my faith in him, but lately I've, I've drifted away, devoted myself to other things. Great, take the next step. Jesus has more joy in forgiving you for your sins today than you do in repenting of it and finding relief. Your sin is not greater than his grace. His heart is wide open for you. Will you turn to him? Some of you may say, you know, the next step for me actually would be oh, a big one. It might involve a, a change of venue, career, or just taking on a, a ministry responsibility that to this point you've, you've not yet taken, but God is inclining your heart in a very significant way. And it looks like a huge leap over a huge canyon. But you know, if God's calling you to take that step, there's really no risk in it. Because it's exactly what he wants for you. Would you just take it? There's a second thing I want to encourage you to do. Tell someone about what God is teaching you and doing in your life. It may be specific to this morning's worship service. It may even be a line or two of a song that really spoke to you. 
I, I'd rather not think this way, but you may say that song was actually more meaningful than your sermon, Danny. That's okay, because God's going to use all this. But tell somebody. Tell somebody what God is doing in your heart. And here's a third thing. Maybe some of you need to set up a follow-up conversation with a friend who invited you to church or a family member or one of the pastoral team members. Matt, Daniel, and I, happy to meet with you. Thrilled. Every week we have opportunities. And there's, there's nothing I love more. Many things about ministry that I love equally, but that's right at the top of the list. So let us serve you if we can. And Father, your word is alive and powerful, and we are, are sensing uh, acts of obedience and, and steps of faith that need to come out of this word that we have studied together this morning. And for some, that is daunting. And for others, there's a, there's a sweet submission uh, that's taking place right now, but I ask that all, all here would obey as they believe. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And then I pray finally that you would use gospel hope in powerful ways to impact this community, that the good works that are underway would continue and that you give us even greater opportunities in the days to come as the pressure in this world builds and as cultures clash and, and uh, so much unrest comes to the surface. Oh, Lord God, cause us to be the voice of truth in the presence of Christ in a culture that is dying, that there might be life that there might be light. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.